Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Zach here and I've got Mrs. White with me. No relation, but Charlie's in the room. <laughs> awesome. Charles II era fun. Charlie, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you, my uh, my podcast husband. Um, yeah, really good. Very exciting to be back in the 17th century. Love it here. Absolutely. Well, we've got Rebecca Redeal with us. Rebecca, fantastic to see you again. And we're talking about a book that, frankly, if, if folks haven't read this book, I don't know what rock they've been living under, but they need to go out and buy it. Charlie, talk us through how brilliant this book is. Yeah, I've just um, reread it. I read it uh, a couple of years ago. I've read it again because it is a gripping read. 1666, Plague, War and Hellfire. It's a really visceral ride through one of the most interesting times in British history, of course, the 17th century, hashtag team 17th and the title of the book is is actually going to quite neatly structure our conversation today because there have been a few moments over the last couple of years that have made me scratch my head and wonder if we are in fact just living through a sort of 17th century immersive experience what maniac would think that that was a good idea and I do wonder if it is all my fault and that I asked for it. So thank you, Rebecca, for joining us today. How are we doing? Thank you for having me. And thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. A bit groggy. I, I had um, some wine last night watching the football. Um, but <laughs> other than that, other than that, I'm OK. I'm glad I did because it kind of softened the blow a little bit. But, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm good, generally. <laughs> that's, that's all any of us can do at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, we're all uh, we're all smarting a little bit. Yes. <laughs> So to to kick us off and to talk about plague, war and hellfire, how did the plague of 1665 differ from, say, previous seasonal plagues? Um, It didn't really. I mean, the reason it's called the Great Plague is because it was the last big plague in England, but it... um, 
proportionally, there's been lots of arguments made that actually it probably wasn't the most deadly. There was a plague in 1603 that may well have been more deadly than the 1665 one. And so it didn't differ from these these, um, intermittent epidemics that erupted. So um, in, yeah, as I say, 1603, there was another one in 1625, another one in 1636, and then, you know, other little bits and pieces. And plague was also endemic. So as you kind of intimated in your question, it was seasonal to a point, but um, you would always have one or two plague deaths every year in in the the burial records so it it did it was normal to have an outbreak and an epidemic of plague it was tragic and horrible and they did not know how to deal with it um and who are we to judge (laughs) (laughs) but it was it was pretty uh, normal to to have an epidemic of that sort was there any difference in terms of the fear that was felt did it kind of were people kind of talking about this a little bit more did it get more coverage um in what publications existed at the time or is it just a case of everybody went hey the plague's back yeah everyone that's exactly what they said hey the plague's back (laughs) Um, (laughs) and I don't know that's a really really tough question because you can't really well I'm sure there are people that do historians of emotion but I find it really hard to judge levels of fear at different points in time because Firstly, we're limited with the sources. We're only guided by what we have. And to be fair, the 17th century is quite rich in terms of source material, but we only have what's been left. So I, I don't know. One thing I will say, and this is just probably um, um, luck, really, is that obviously we have Samuel Pepys's diary from this point in time. So we do get an insight into his mentality during the outbreak of plague, which is not necessarily always a good thing, um, <laughs> as well as um, John Evelyn and um, various others who wrote letters. The earlier plagues in, in the early part of the 17th century, what we get are um, pamphlets that are satirical by the likes of Thomas Decker and plays that focus on plague as well by Ben Jonson. So The Alchemist um, is a really fascinating and funny um, look at plague time mm-hmm. London um, it's basically the story of a house that's left vacant and it's taken over by a group of um, uh, I don't know how to call them really a group of um, people anyway <laughs> and, um, they set up shop and pretend that they're they're practicing alchemy but it's funny and but you don't get those types of plays in the 1665 outbreak and it might just be because of the nature of um literary culture um, changing and evolving at the time um, but yeah so there's a range of sources to draw from from and I'm not too sure if we can measure how fearful people were of one plague as opposed to another during the 17th century. I love that we've got onto Peeps already I mean we could oh, do, we yes. probably should do a podcast just on Peeps. No no no, no he's a booted pervin cheese fan Samuel Peeps. Yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny though, rereading um, rereading your book at, at this time, Rebecca, because you know reading it before uh, before COVID times, you you're trying to imagine how people must have felt, and now it's almost like we've got a slight. We're always looking for parallels, and one thing I found very interesting about the the seasonality of plague was seeing how Scotland reacted and didn't want people from England coming to Scotland to trade without a certificate of health. And it was, it was because they'd actually had 
quite a recent outbreak. So they remembered how bad it was and they didn't want it coming in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's um it's such a strange one and it does it I've I've been thinking about it a lot. Um obviously during the um outbreak, well, the pandemic, the COVID pandemic. And it's it's a it has made me look at things slightly differently. Or maybe no, that's not the right the the right thing to say. Maybe appreciate things that I probably didn't really pay too much attention to at the time. And one of those things is the daily grind uh, when it comes to a pandemic. So if you remember, I mean, I don't do this anymore. Some people might do this. Um, and <laughs> I feel sorry for them if they do, because it's arduous. But when the outbreak first started last April, we were literally wiping down all of the shopping as we got it before putting it <laughs> in the cupboards. And it just takes forever but we were doing it each time we were you know we had a shop and it just made me think about the um the processes that people went through in the 17th century so they used to, they thought that vinegar would um would um get rid of plague um mm. so so they used to um kind of cover letters in vinegar and <laughs> the, you would find you, you find in the archive letters often say like you know this is this has been fumigated in vinegar beforehand and you just think of that daily thing of having to make sure things have been covered in vinegar before you send them off it's just there's lots of mundane things that come with pa- a pandemic but equally the other thing that i've appreciated a bit more is the loneliness of isolation because i think we've all felt that I mean, lots of people feel lonely a lot of the time anyway, but many people don't. And they would have encountered the feelings of deep loneliness for the first time during a pandemic. And that's something that you can't really articulate um, very well um, on, you know, letters and and, and things. So we we don't really know those feelings from the source material, but we can we can kind of make an educated guess that that's that's how a lot of people would have been feeling at the time. I mean, a lot of people have have made comparisons in the media, haven't they, between COVID and plague, and you've got all of these arguments about what's the best way to deal with it. Do do we know about, you know, equivalent kind of arguments back then? Are people kind of going, no, this is the way you you know, don't use vinegar, you're a fool, use, I don't know, (laughs) herbs instead or something. Do you get an You're a plague idiot. Exactly. (laughs) And yeah, well, you pulled out an example, actually, that's... um, vinegar was universally acclaimed for its properties so that's one that's one example where there wasn't much debate over that really but yes you're absolutely right there was lots of discourse over what was the best way to deal with it where you know there was um, and I write in the book and uh, writing my book which I've I was saying before I've not read for years and years and years so um, <laughs> forgive me if I get this wrong um, but there's one instance during the plague where there's a, a kind of um stone or um that seemed to be a, a kind of miraculous cure and it's it's used by lots of people it comes over from france and then you know that you have a physician called nathaniel hodges who basically says that actually what it did was just basically push people to the grave a lot faster than they would have been before it didn't work but there's all this debate and then there's different layers of medical care in the 17th century as well so you have nurses not in the modern sense of nurses in in the the traditional sense of the word nursing, helping the sick, mm. um, they they would be taking care of the sick. You had physicians, you had apothecaries, um, and then you would have quack doctors as well. And they're all kind of vying for um, customers, really, um, and you know trying to help a situation. But they're all in competition with each other. So yes, lots of debates, lots of conflict, and um, 
lots of uh, criticism between the various factions. Does the king get involved at all? I mean, I'm thinking of Charlie's boy, Charles II, and how he <laughs> likes to do the whole kind of process of touching to cure scrofula, um, which, you know, obviously we kind of look at medically today and go, hmm, but potentially <laughs> it kind of had a psychosomatic effect. What does Charles II do? Does he kind of look at this and go, yeah, I don't want to touch plague victims? Yeah, the only thing he was touching really during this time were women. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> my boy. Yeah. He didn't really get involved in um, cures. He did have a keen interest in science and the human body and attended dissections and things. Um, but he didn't really, he, he wasn't really as far as we know, in as interested during 1665 in in cures for the plague. It wasn't like the plague came along and everyone, like like today with COVID, everyone was like, you know, we need to find, we need to um, look at um, look at the genome, piece it all together, then we need to find out what vaccines might work. There was nothing like that. It wasn't like the plague arrived and everyone was thinking, oh my gosh, how can we get rid of this? They literally just reverted back to tried and tested methods that they'd used before. Yes, there was debate about small bits of treatment as I've, I've touched upon before and debate about whether other factions were doing things right but it wasn't like they were hunting down like the the, the elixir to to save to save people from from plague um but yeah so Charles was was off in Salisbury and then Oxford during 1665 and the very first bit of 1666 um basically just shagging around um lady castlemaine his long-term mistress at this point in time had um little notes pinned up around oxford about her saying how basically she was um she liked to have sex with the king and you know it, the 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 royal court was defined by debauchery at this time rather than a yearning to to stop and find a cure for the plague well look i'm going to play devil's advocate for my boy here um <laughs> what what i find really interesting about about that and about the fact that the court left is and I don't know if this is if if you you think that this is true from from all your research the plague did not seem to affect people with money it didn't seem to it didn't take uh lord whatever it didn't take um it didn't take anyone royal it didn't take anybody of of um, inverted commas worth it attacked the poor and one of the things I found most surprising from your book was the doctors they did not stay in London also no no they 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 fled but they had a you know they'd done that before um, and this is why the apothecaries managed to take a bit of a hold and get their company established in the early part of the 17th century is because they looked, they, they spoke about the doctors and how they'd fled the physicians. Um, and it was a big criticism of them, but they still kept doing it. And I mean, yes, it's bad that they would leave and not treat the poor. Mm. That's obviously bad. If you put yourself in the mindset of a selfish man who needs to make money, then he's gonna. You, you're gonna follow whoever's got the money and whoever will be able to pay for you to make sure that they don't get plague. So that's basically what they all did. Um, and what can you, you know, if you are just looking to, you know, if you are just thinking about yourself yeah. and your own survival, the only thing you can do to, you know, give yourself a fighting chance of not catching plague is get yourself the hell out of the area where plague is running you know rampant so yeah that's what they did and it's shocking and awful that they did so 
Um, but they probably, you know, had a logic to it in their own minds. But presumably yeah. that did the same kind of thing that we witnessed with COVID, where people carry it with them and then other areas become infected. Yeah, of course. And that's what happened in when they were on their way to Salisbury. Members of the court entourage started contracting plague and there were a couple of instances of people being isolated or shut up in in homes <laughs> or taken to pest houses and things so yeah that definitely definitely happened and people you know traveling on along the waterways or traveling along the highways out of london would take it with them to other cities as well gosh it's and they didn't even have netflix they got shut up in their houses nothing to watch absolutely yeah. awful <laughs> to watch at all no Netflix oh, dear me. I mean can you imagine a world in which you know no matter how much money you had there was a, a a health service that was free at the point of use for your entire life wouldn't that be wonderful oh yes <laughs> I mean this is it's such an interesting comparison to make now and the level of empathy that I think we can all have with that time for something that was very abstract before. And I think many of our listeners, Rebecca, are going to have a working knowledge of the Great Plague from history lessons at school. Mm. Now, when when I was studying um, this in the late 80s slash early 90s, um, that's 1980s and 1990s, just to be clear, uh, everything seemed incredibly unimaginable and almost like it, it happened to fake people in a, in a movie. Do you think that there's going to be a revision of the way that this subject is discussed and taught post COVID? Um, that's a, a really good question. Um, I think, I think there's definitely room to look at the psychological impact of epidemics mm. in history and lots of people have done lots of work in these areas already I'm not sure that there's been that much done on the psychological impact of the great plague of 1665 so that's certainly an area that would warrant further research because if that you know one of the other things that COVID has done is kind of pulled into sharp focus the effects that a pandemic has or an epidemic has on those that don't necessarily catch the contagion but they are affected by family members that have suffered or died and that's one of the things that I always try to make people bear in mind when they think about the great plague of 1665 and indeed other plagues in the 17th century as well but let's just talk about the 1665 so there's a population in London at at this time of we think round about 500,000 give or take, probably take, probably between 450 and, and 500,000. But in mm. any case, it's, you know, that's that's roundabout where we are. And we, we think that around 100,000 people died of plague. Now, that's 100,000 people that died of plague after there had been lots of evacuations from the city when the plague first arrived. So you have to think about the impact of that on that one city. It, it's enormous, Mm. Um, in terms of proportion and in terms of scale. And we've been going through a pandemic that has been absolutely atrocious and lots of people have lost loved ones or have seen loved ones, you know, hospitalised and suffering from, from this disease if they've not, you know, been in that position themselves, yeah. myself included. But even through experiencing that, we cannot even come close to understanding what it must have been like during 1665 because 
the proportions were were way higher. I mean, it it is ridiculous the amount of people that died of plague mm. during that year. Gosh. So nice and morbid. Cheery, <laughs> cheery yeah. stuff. Yeah, no, this is. <laughs> Shall I keep the merry tone going by talking about divided societies and war then? Because, Yay. yeah, I mean, <laughs> hey, society is still divided now post Brexit. What were we, five, six years after that vote? And, and the country supposedly has come together, but hasn't. Um, for those who would be surprised to hear that, though, I think it's important for them to think back to this period of time, the, the 1660s, where you've had a civil war in the 1640s, the protectorate under Cromwell, our least favourite person, right, Charlie? Hey. In the, in the hey. 1660s. <laughs> and then it all gets resolved in happiness and, you know, honey and wine and, in Charles II's case, philandering, when it comes <laughs> to the restoration. So has society kind of recovered by 1666 or are they still kind of are there, are there still tensions between catholic and protestant and uh, roundhead and cavalier and so on um so it's a kind of cultural thing so much like i mean i don't like to co- do comparisons with the present because it's always you're always stretching things a bit but much like with with brexit it's become part of people's identity whether they were leave or remain and then that kind of you people build on that with other other aspects of their identity and things that they believe in and it's caused this you know these kind of as a right-wing press likes to label it culture wars and mm. um, but in any case um there was there was some of that some some of that I, I suppose during the 1660s um it's really hard to say because lots of things look you know even when you have a huge amount of re, you know change whether that's a regime change or whatever the lives of everyday people around England probably didn't change that much. I mean, you know, if you if you're a, a labourer on a farm, or if you're, you know, yeah. it, it probably didn't change too much for a lot of people. Conflicts in terms of religious friction, there were changes when it came to that post sixteen sixty. So there was a series of. Um, laws that came into place which were labelled the Clarendon Code which actually didn't have that much to do with Clarendon in terms of his ideology but in any case they were named after him and that basically tried to promote the the main church of England in inverted commas at, at the expense of smaller factions of Protestantism so Quakers for example and other um, smaller groups were um there were laws that prevented them from having large gatherings or meeting within certain a certain geographic space. Um, you know, you couldn't have more than one of them um, in a certain space, for example. And Quakers were kind of rounded up if there were too many of them in a meeting, put on plantation ships and sent over as indentured labourers over to the Americas. That's so um, harsh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there were worse things, you know, there's been worse instances of um, of uh, it, the English taking people over the Atlantic. But yes, it's um, it's harsh, um, nevertheless. And so so you had all of this going on, but then also you had you had cultural changes in terms of the theatres. But again, mm-hmm. that's that's very London centric. So you had all of these these new theatres emerging, but around the country despite what we might know about Cromwell, there would have still been, you know, um, performances or puppet shows or things like that that would that would be going on. So people yeah. would still experience entertainment. So in terms of change, in terms of 
progress in terms of what stayed the same. It's a real mixed picture. Um, there were definitely some movements. I mean, having um, actresses on the stage was obviously a new thing. Paid actresses. The Royal Court had had females acting for, for decades, if not centuries. But um, yeah, acting as a profession was opened up to women after this point. But I am rambling because there's so much to say about this. Obviously, the Royal Society as well, that appeared. <laughs> you're, you're so right. This is the thing. We're, we're talking about such a small window of time and mm. so much happened and so much changed and it's almost like at this point in the mid 17th century it's almost like you start to recognize London especially mm. you could you can see you, know, you can see why they call it the early modern period you can see how the way that things are now are being shaped and set up and I think that's part of the attraction to it for all its madness. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And in terms of the habits that we have in a city of going shopping and things, that's that's definitely rooted in, in this period um, and experiencing, you know, cultural things like going to the theatre and stuff. That's, um, you know, it's very much a 17th century, late 16th century thing. So, yeah, it is, it's a period of lots of change and lots of new experiences for people and lots of things coming over that are new and interesting, such as coffee and mm. tea and um, all the rest of it. But obviously, you know, there's there's the dark side of this that can't be ignored, which is yeah. it's the early, early um, years of colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade and the, trans, yeah. you know, the slave trade state-backed slavery is established during Charles II's reign. He is absolutely and um, fully behind it, as is his brother, yeah. if not more, um, James, the Duke of York, later James II, and their cousin, Prince Rupert of the Rhine. It's it's down to them that it becomes a state-backed thing. It would have happened regardless of the king or, you know, queen at that time, because that's the way Europe was moving. But you know, that doesn't negate the fact that they were the ones that, oh. that were behind it. So there's loads, there's yeah. loads going on. Um, but as I say, lots of things stayed the same for an everyday person living somewhere in England as well. Their life wouldn't have changed too much um, from 1659 to 1660, for example, yeah. um, despite a massive regime change. But yeah. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Yeah, you, I mean, it, it is a point that can't be ignored that, it, when you read about um, when you read about the setting up of you know, things like the Royal African Company and the East India Company and all of all of these sort of huge huge um, enterprises, it's written about 
so when you when you go back to older books, it's written about so flippantly, almost mm-hmm. like Rupert and James turn up to Charles and say, "Boy, have we got a business opportunity for you?" And he says, "Yep, yeah, I'm in." And it is that easy and that quick to set up something that would be so huge and so cruel. Um, yeah, can't. I think I think we just like to compartmentalize things. There's a there's a, a cognitive dissonance that goes on and it went on in their minds as well yes it went absolutely this they knew what they were doing but they managed to separate it in their heads um but we as historians can't do that we have to look at the the whole thing we have to look at things holistically because that's you know that that's our job um so yes they may have been able to compartmentalize historians may have done that in the past but we can't do that anymore we have to look at them as a whole you know the whole picture in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Do they have a... Because a lot of our problems in terms of trying to stamp out racism in society now are influenced by the racial attitudes of the 19th and early 20th century. How, How is that different in the the 1600s when they still do othering because they're they're you know they're segregating people on grounds of religion so segregation is is a huge part of society anyway so how do they think about people of different ethnic origins well i'm there's a lot of work that's gone into this and there's a really good book by um an author called angela can't remember her surname, Saini, I think, I think her surname is, although I may have pronounced it incorrectly, but she's, she's written a book called Superior that basically tracks the, um, um, the history of racism and um, racist science as well. And I hope if, if she, if she's listening, I hope she can forgive me for, if I misrepresent her book, but my understanding from her, from her work is that the, the slave trade before the slave trade, yes, there was, you know, racism um, in, you know, with a different, that, that word wasn't used, but the, mm-hmm. the racism existed. But it was during the slave trade when, and, and during the 18th century, during the Enlightenment, when people started to rank different um, people from different places in terms of who they thought was best or worse. And, and that's when this idea of racism really, really took hold. And that's where, where, you know, it all kind of like evolved in the 18th century. And then in the 19th century, you get, you get the eugenics movement and all the rest of it. So I'm not the person to talk about it because it's mm. not my expertise. That book is definitely one that people should read. It is called Superior. The author's first, first name is Angela. Um, so I would, I would recommend that, but it's, um, it's a really important topic. So yeah, I would urge you to read that book. And it feels like a very, I mean, again, it, it feels like our conversation is even more um, appropriate this this morning, you know, seeing seeing what we're seeing on social media with, with racist abuse and um, how, again, these, these things that are set up at this time almost just have these future echoes uh, for us. So... Yeah. <sighs> 
in in let's let's talk about the euros come on let's let's talk about the euros this is this is much more more fun um where where did england fit into european politics in 1666 are are we are we ruling the waves by this point um well yes and no like that that idea of ruling waves obviously (laughs) (laughs) um so england is obviously one of the few european countries that are protestant so it's part of this kind of northern european protestant band of of countries um which also included the netherlands um so in terms of that that's a difference um we are the in, I say we my ancestors weren't around in England at that time they were in Ireland but in any case <laughs> um the England is a maritime nation and it's it has lots of ships at this point in time and it, lots of the ships that it has are as a consequence of the um ship tax that and I say that with a p and um, <laughs> um, Charles the first brought into play earlier on in the century um, so there are lots of there are lots of ships. They're trading. They're trying to get hold of um, many of the trading bases that the Portuguese used to have, mm. and they're in competition with the Dutch, also the Swedish, the Swedes as well, um, to get these trading ports. And many of them are along the West African coast, but also others are along the um, the coast of the Americas as well. So there's competition that's going on there, and there's competition particularly between the English and the Dutch for these trading bases that used to be owned by the Portuguese. Um, and that's where we see conflict, which is interesting because obviously you'd think, oh, two Protestant nations, why are they battling each other? Um, well, the reason is because they are two Protestant na- nations. They're both in competition for um, the uh, commerce around the world. And that's what they're doing. So, yes, another long answer to <laughs> question. <laughs> I do ramble a lot. <laughs> it's good. No, we love it. Those Portuguese, hang on a second. Those Portuguese trading ports, weren't they weren't they English property anyway? Didn't didn't we marry them? Uh no. <laughs> they weren't English property. They were they were kind of um taken in by many of them were taken by the, the Spanish. Ah. Uh, the, the, the Portuguese basically were the first to to start the transatlantic slave trade, closely followed by the Spanish um, and then the French. And England and the Dutch were a little bit slow to get started um, in this horrible, horrible trade. Mm. But once they realised that's what they wanted to do, they really, really went for it, as did the Dutch. And that's where the competition emerged from. I should explain my my last question just for anyone who's not not as obsessed with this this period as I am. So when Charles II married uh, the Portuguese infanta Catherine of Braganza, she came with part of her dowry was Bombay and Tangier. So there we got we did get a couple of places, but that that came with a lot of strings attached, and they didn't necessarily um, make a profit very quickly, and we didn't take possession of them straight away. Well, Tangier was taken possession of quite easily mm. and quite quickly, but it wasn't used as a, I mean, it's again, another big topic. And it's one that Samuel Pepys is very much involved in, <laughs> forever sitting on the Tangier <laughs> On the committee. Yeah. Um, but it was more of a, it was more of a useful point. It wasn't one of these, it wasn't one of these really important, and I hate using these words because mm. 
we're talking about slavery here, but to those to the the people living the 17th century, these these trading posts were seen as important because they got them in on it. And we can't ignore that fact. It wasn't one of those posts that was that was directly would have directly been um, um, influential, I suppose, in the, the slave trade. But I mean, it was still part of it. But yes, it's a really, really complex, complex topic. But basically, the people that were involved, it was horrendous and what they did. There you go. <laughs> I always feel while we're talking about Catherine of Braganza, I don't know about you, Charlie, um, but I always feel massively, massively sorry for her because she's she seems to be a, a lovely individual. Mm. She suffers a huge amount from illness. And there's this really odd relationship going on where Charles doesn't seem to be particularly interested because he's off sleeping with pretty much anybody <laughs> that, that, that's interested. And yet when she becomes quite seriously ill, he's he's kind of beside himself with worry and, you know, spends hours by her bedside and, you know, is, is massively grateful to the doctors. What's her life like during all of this tumult? Does she, is she kind of pushed to the side completely? Does she just kind of have to get on with it herself? Um, she suffers quite a few miscarriages during this time. So she's, She's obviously got the trauma of, of that, of becoming pregnant. I mean, that's her main job as a wife to the king. She has to give him an heir and he's been he's shown that he's virile himself. So, you know, so she will be internalising that and the fact that, you know, she'll be excited when she's getting pregnant. She's realised that she is. And then she's having to have a miss, you know, she's having a miscarriage. And not just that, it's, you know, she has these male physicians that are kind of pulling out what's coming out of her. And examining it in detail, this these membranes and things. Sorry, trigger warning. (laughs) And and she's got all of that trauma going on. And then she's got, you know, she's a a very quiet, shy woman before she came to England. Um, She was older to be getting married, um, but she was, you know, she was quite shy and she has to deal them with the fact that her husband is clearly having multiple affairs which isn't unusual for a king to do Mm. but he's doing it very um uh, publicly so that's embarrassing as well if it was behind closed doors it might not have been so embarrassing um that said she does have she does have a quite a nice bond with her master of horse um (laughs) Mr. Montague. Yeah, in, innocent on her part, I'm sure, although she probably liked the attention, um, but he definitely made moves on him. Um, and she innocently, in inverted commas, asked her husband, Charles, what it, what it meant when someone puts their hand or whatever it was that he did to her. And he was basically like, uh, no, that's not fucking happening. Um, bye-bye, Edward Montague. And he was booted out. And so she got his brother to take over the role but anyway so she's she has got companions and I think once she gets used to the idea and this is me psychoanalyzing her but once she's used to the idea that her husband is a philanderer and she's not going to have you know a relationship that's you know respectful in that sense she I think she may have a little bit more calm in her life once she accepts her situation I, I my suspicion is that their bond in the end was more of a brotherly sisterly bond um rather than anything romantic and if they did you know try for children it was literally because they were trying for children but after a certain point you, you realize that you know that's not going to happen and um, plus he's got all of his 14 bastards anyway 
Um, one of them is a, a bit of a bastard. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I feel for so, Catherine yeah. around this time as well because you know there there is a war going on. It is a real war with some huge naval engagements. And when Charles sends Montague off, um, he sends him to go and be on one of those boats, doesn't he? And he is this, this is the right Montague ends up dead. Um, Catherine having had a miscarriage sort of around the time of, I think it's around the time of the four day fight goes down to Tunbridge Wells to take the water in mm-hmm. the, the 17th century IVF treatment of the day that, that all of those, those emotions, the hope, the faith, you know, that you're going to have this, you're going to take this water and you will conceive and bear a child all of all of that stuff she goes down with her ladies in waiting one of whom is the countess of castlemaine her king's lover who is da 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 escandalo uh, pregnant again it's just it it's horrific the more you think about catherine of braganza the worse it gets but she had one job yeah it's it's really sad and one, one of the most enjoyable parts of writing the book was discovering Edward Montague. Mm. There are loads of Edward Montagues at this point. Oh, it's so frustrating. I thought it was the Earl of Sandwich. I got yeah, really confused. Cousin <laughs> once removed or something like that. But anyway, so it was one of the most enjoyable things was discovering their connection and actually going through the archive and piecing together um, Montague's story as well and how how he'd been cast aside. He was a, he was a rotter, but he. <laughs> He, he's a kind of tragic in a way. Maybe he's only tragic because of his ending. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed researching him and piecing together his life and the way that it worked with her. And the fact that he was at um, the Battle of Bergen with the Earl of Rochester as well. It's just it's just interesting making these links when you're doing research. Into I mean, you'll know when you're kind of finding these moments and you think, actually, that links with that. Oh, this is great. I can make a nice narrative out of that. Um, that's I, That's quite fun. It's like a almost three-dimensional jigsaw, isn't it? Trying to piece yeah. it all together. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about fire now, having talked about the cheery topics of um, plague and, and warfare. Let's let's keep the kind of <laughs> merriment going. Um, <laughs> <laughs> fires in London, not that unusual. I mean, it's essentially a sort of almost medieval town at this point, isn't it? What made 1666 so different? Um. It was big. It was a big fire. <laughs> That's basically it. It, it, it. I mean, it was different because lots of stuff burnt um, and they didn't manage to stop it. So that's basically it. I mean, yeah, there was a, a, a everything that, that was needed to ensure that the fire would burn and burn big was there. The, the wind dry summer so everything I mean people know this you know this if you anyone has gone to school which everyone has will know this story <laughs> of the great fire of London and um, no revelations here but I'll go over it anyway <laughs> um, and it happened early on a Sunday morning so people were having a bit of a lie-in it was church day the next day they probably had a few drinks the night before and it just wasn't they didn't tackle it quick enough. They didn't do the things that they needed to have done, um, which would have been to create a fire break by um, pulling down the houses surrounding the fire on Pudding Lane. And once they hadn't done that, it's my opinion that as soon as the fire spread down to Thames Street, which is by the river, 
it was literally like it was always going to consume the whole of the city of London. They didn't really stand a chance. So, yeah, big fire. That's why it's different. (laughs) I mean, I always I think going going back to just a comment about plague, I always thought the king and the court leaving London during the plague. That's understandable. You can't have your your monarch die of plague. But we can all agree that the optics were bad for him to run away. Mm-hmm. How did the king use the fire to rehabilitate his image with the common people of London? Well, he turned to the papers. So he, well, he did that afterwards. So he basically <laughs> had to make sure that he was saving the day, him and his brother. So they did. They went, well, they didn't save the day, but they went out there and they were helping with the fire um, as everyone else was guiding and instructing. In fact, that's, I'm belittling James Duke of York's role. He did have a key role in organising the, the various firefighting teams around the city. Um, but they just made sure they were seen. They were hands on. They were giving money out to people to encourage them to help put out the fire. And then afterwards, they made sure that they had a full write up in the London Gazette about how heroic and amazing they were. So that <laughs> everyone could hear about it and know that their their um, you know monarch was fully, fully engaged in fighting the fire in the city. But incidentally, um, the the commentators abroad genuinely thought that the fire would bring down the end of the the Stuart monarchy they thought that it would be that cataclysmic um but nothing of the sort happened I mean it was not that that from my reading of the source material that was never really on the cards at all and I think people were just too tired to start a full revolution (laughs) knackered after four days staying awake fighting fires and losing all their their goods gosh (laughs) I mean, where do people go in the aftermath of the fire? Because the whole point is, you know, houses burnt down. Do you see a kind of an exodus from London as, yeah. as a result of this? Yeah, you do. And you see, um, you see, I mean, pe- immediately after a lot of people um, kind of try to set up temporary shacks um, at the location where their buildings and businesses and stuff had been. And this was, this was prohibited pretty quickly. But of course, London was not a city that was owned by one person. Everybody had a stake in small parts of it. Mm. So a lot of people tried to ensure that they got back their little piece, their little slice of London. But others, others you know, drift, drifted away. And then the suburban areas that were already starting to build up um, on the outside of the city of London um, built up even more and especially along the Strand and, and the west part of London as well but then it didn't take long before the inner parts of the city of London to be rebuilt and people moved back in there as well so there's lots of movement lots of people moving away but London's a city where it the population will always be replenished by immigrants anyway um, so it, it didn't have a, a a huge effect on the population um, of London overall. And within a, within 12 or so years, quite a lot of the city had been rebuilt or was fully on its way. Gosh. I mean, we we know now that the fire started at the baker shop in Pudding Lane and, and most school children could correctly tell you that. But did did the people know at the time? Did they ever find the cause of the fire? Did they have forensics? Did they... Did they just look to blame somebody for it? Well, they wanted to blame a Catholic um, because, you know, that was that would be quite handy to blame a foreign Catholic. <laughs> Convenient. Um, yeah, <laughs> but they couldn't find one. So they just blamed it <laughs> that, that seemed that they were foreign to London or England. And we have really violent accounts of, well, really graphic accounts of violence that went on. Some of them are a bit strange. Um, I won't go into them because they are 
I literally have been so morbid. Read Rebecca's book. Some of them are vile. If you yeah. like that kind of thing, get the book. Yeah. Um, so that <laughs> happened. They did kind of know it started in a bakehouse. They tried to blame someone else that had a bakehouse that happened to be, I think he was Dutch. Again, it will say in my book. <laughs> um, and yeah, so so there was a lot of blame going on, but then they it, it they figured it out, figured out that it was coming from Pudding Lane. I mean, they saw it for God's sake. Um, and mm. that it was Thomas Farriner, but he was kind of it was seen as an accident and he wasn't blamed. Someone else was hanged for it because he was accused of, you know, starting starting the fire through arson. Um, but yeah, I mean, lots of blame going around. And then on the monument that was built after the Great Fire, of course, they blame the Catholics for for the Great Fire, which is not true. <laughs> Gosh, just goes to show that how deep those divisions still were. Yeah. Mm. I mean, did the fire show up kind of disparities in the living conditions between the rich and the poor in London any more than the plague had already done? Or did other of those things kind of make life slightly better for the poor living in London? Because we think about the rebuild and Christopher Wren and kind of the, the modern layout of central London being based on that. Do, do, your, do your average people kind of benefit from, I know it seems a bit weird, but do they kind of benefit from the fire in the long run? Um, I don't, I don't know what, what, in terms of the, um, in terms of looking at the population demographic, there were some amazing records that were, um, that we have, um, from just after the great fire, which have been called the fire court records where people went to, um, a, a few judges that were working kind of pro bono and they went to them and spoke to them about what 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 they'd had in the city so their their properties and any disputes and how long their tenancy was supposed to be how long they had left what had been paid what hadn't been paid so from these records you do get an insight into who was living in the city and how much money they had and what they were up to and how many properties and you do see the beginnings of some and don't ask me for the names because I forget now, but some of the big families of the 18th century, you see their ancestors in these records with just a few properties in London at this time. But we know from history that they would go on to be huge, um, hugely rich and influential families. Um, so you do you do get a really good insight into life in London um, um, through these records. Gosh. This is this is fascinating, Rebecca. And frankly, I could talk to you about this all day um, and all evening over several bottles of wine. Um, <laughs> I I think everybody should read your book, and I I'd like to, if it's okay with you, because I know you you don't read it, but I'd like to just wrap up our conversation with a quick quote from your book, which I think is actually quite hopeful. Um, so it's says here like a worm that has been trampled on london and its people wriggled back to life plague had changed them but they lived and moved and talked and copulated and a semblance of normality began to return we can't hope for better than that can we oh, well, <laughs> i feel like you. i should stand and, <laughs> and applaud you charlie i mean we're talking earlier about offline about how people aren't applauding you when you're doing your uh, <laughs> cooking work on like, I feel like I should stand on that board because it kind of gives you just that glimmer of hope you know life goes on and hey they're not my words they are the words of, Re of Rebecca in her fabulous book 1666 well you read oh. them very well thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca it's this has been brilliant I have really enjoyed talking to you again 
um, people go and buy this book. Uh, I don't know how people can have not bought this book and, and read it. <laughs> um, it's fantastic. It will probably be on the History Hack um, bookstore. There'll be a link in the description. Um, so you can also support the podcast whilst also supporting Rebecca and reading her brilliant work. Everybody wins. But thank you so, so much for coming on and talking to us about this. Pleasure. Thank you. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.